1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, 24, and 25. The Word of God says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. You may be seated. Father, what an amazing song of reminding us that there is a Lord that's coming. He is full of glory. He deserves all praise, Lord. And Father, it is somewhat effortlessly for us to sing that. We are captured with Christ. He means everything to us. So Lord, we now await his return. But we are not just merely sitting with hands folded on the lap. You have given instructions while we wait. So Lord, may we be diligent to persevere, to press on, to the day he returns. Lord, we long for that return. We long to be in your presence. But Lord, we have given us jobs to do. You have assigned us to be members of a body of Christ, serving, bringing glory to you. Lord, we ask that you would encourage us today. Strengthen the body, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. At the end of 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives a collection of thoughts for the Christian. This is a book written to a church that was serious about their faith. They had struggles just like any church. They were not perfect. But yet they were a church that pursued Christ. And in his closing thoughts of this first letter before Certainly he writes a second letter warning of apostasy and the coming of evil and end times things. But at this end, he wants to encourage the congregation of of Thessalonica to live for the Lord Jesus and long for his return. Long for his return. I know um, I was young at once, and when you think about the coming of Christ or rapture and the end of the church age, Some get nervous about that when you're young. Thoughts go through your head. I want to get married. I want to have children. I want to finish my degree. As if those things would be better than being in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in our youth, we can't quite see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as full as you do is when you grow. Now, that is not true with all young people, but I remember that being Uh, a thought or two that would pass through my head. Paul was always teaching the church to live as though he was going to show up today. You get that when you read him? When you read the writings, the inspired writings of particularly Apostle Paul, he is urging the brethren to live as though Jesus is coming today. And where will you be when he comes? What will you be doing? What will be the emphasis in your life? What will be the most important things to you the day he shows up? 
Clearly the Bible tells us, and look at the first, uh, chapter five here, and we'll look through this as we kind of set up the text, that no man knows. Chapter five, verse one says, now as to the time and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. See, he's been informing them, they've been trained, they have pastors that are teaching them that, that Jesus is coming. You can know this, he's promised this, he himself said these things. Verse two, for you yourself know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. It is not expected, thieves don't send notices to your home and say I will be robbing you Sunday night at 6 a.m. or p.m. or whatever. They don't do that, right? And so he uses this analogy, it's an interesting analogy. But everybody knows how thief works. Nobody knows when he's coming. Verse three, and while they are saying, and this is the world, this is the world's view of life, peace and safety, and then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. And they will not escape. You gotta love Paul's expressiveness. He goes from thieves to a woman in labor to help us get the concept that you don't know when this is gonna happen. The Lord is coming. Verse four, but you. Now, if you're a studier of the scriptures, if you like to study a student of the scriptures, little phrases like, but you, grab your attention. It's an aversive conjunction. It means he's just said a very negative thought. This is like a thief in the night. This is, there's destruction coming. There's, there's somebody saying false things, peace and safety. People are gonna buy into that. He goes into further in 2 Thessalonians on that as well. But now he changes the, the tone here. He moves to a positive. But you, this, this isn't you. This isn't you that falls to the deception of the world. But you, brethren, this is the elect, the saved, those who God has gathered into his church, are not in darkness. See, he's going to, play on this light and darkness. Those who don't know Jesus live in darkness. They, they are confused. They are easily deceived. And you can certainly deceive somebody in darkness very quickly. He says, that's not true of you. You're not in darkness. That the day would overtake you like a thief. I'm going to give evidence. Verse 5, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor darkness. He is clearly defining the difference between believers and unbelievers. And if Jesus is your savior, you are in the light and thus you recognize light and you recognize darkness. You see the difference in them. Verse six, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Uses the word sleep, very interesting in this passage. In fact, in several of these letters, he talks of sleep as death for believers sometimes. Their body sleeps, but their soul is with the Lord. Here he uses it as a laziness of scriptures, uh, for scriptures and for a Christianity. Do not, do not let us sleep as others do, but let us be alert. There's a difference between a Christian who is awake and one who is asleep. One who is caught up in the world, the cares of the world that have lulled him to sleep or her to sleep. Verse seven, for those who sleep do not sleep 
for those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, now he's again showing the difference, let us be sober, alert, self-control, this whole word means this, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. So he's, he's saying, look, there's a difference between those who who sleep and are caught in darkness and who, who are controlled by other things like drunkenness. But those that are of the day, they're alert, they're watching, they put on the breastplate of faith and love. There's a certain marker about us. We protect our hearts with the truth of what God has done in our lives. We secure our heads with a helmet of salvation. This is a picture of a soldier. He's not asleep when the war is going on. He is awake and he is dressed properly. Verse nine, for God has not destined us for wrath. This is a beautiful little phrase. Get your mind around this just for a minute, brothers and sisters. God has not destined, your Bible may say appointed, is a very strong word used throughout the scriptures of 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 a sovereign choice of something. God has not destined us for wrath. That, that verse should encourage your heart. God has not chose you for wrath. That means God is pleased with you now. You're not under his wrath. We were born under his wrath. We're born sinners, born under judgment. But now you've been removed from the wrath of God. Notice he says in the rest of the verse, but for the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the difference. Verse 10, he brings the gospel of how this took place, who died for us. So that whether we awake or sleep, whether we're alive when Christ returns or we've passed from this life onto the next, we live together with him. And that's a beautiful thought. What he is reminding us here is, is that once you are belong to Lord Jesus Christ, you are always with Christ. Our dear relatives who have passed on, they are with Christ. Those of us who remain are with Christ. So whether you have passed on and you have died and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are with Christ. We have sing a song, I think it's a Sovereign Grace song, and they said we, our voices join with the voices above. Is that right? Looking at some of our worship leaders. Um, and I love that song because that's what we do. The voices below join with the voices above to sing the praises of God. We're still down here, unfortunately, for whatever amount of time that is, as God sees fit or he is ordained. But our voices join with the voices above. That's what's unique about the body of Christ. Though some pass on, they are still part of this. And we live together with him. This is absolute Christ-centeredness. What an assurance to those who maybe life is fleeting. Maybe the Lord won't return before they take their last breath. The Bible says you will live with me. I love that. Verse 11 Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are also doing. So, these are the final instructions. So, he lays this groundwork. The Lord's going to return. The Lord is 
coming. He's, he's going to establish his kingdom. He is going to set up his rule. We will see him. We will be like him when he returns, First John says. And so while you wait, he gives some preparation for us. And so I entitled the sermon, The Prepared Church and the Coming King. Look at five thoughts here. First of all, pray for the leadership of your church. Pray for the leadership of your church. Turn back to the last verse that we read, verse 25. Fascinating little verse. 26, 27, 28 are his closing, kind of signature closing. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. This was a greeting of the early church. It was, it was not in any way worldly. It was a, it was a greeting that marked that you were a, a brethren, that you were part of the church. Often used to distinguish that those are those trying to sneak into the church to expose them, eventually to have them killed. Greet one another with a holy kiss. He goes on to close out the letter. But look at verse 25. Paul, the great apostle, trainer of so many men, says, brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. One of the things the church does is it prays for its leaders. Turn back just a little ways and jump back up to verses 12 and 13. God has given leaders. He always has. I'm in my Bible reading. I'm in the middle of the book of Numbers right now. And it's astounding to be reminded that God has always raised up leaders and he was very diligent and very detailed of how he wanted them to handle his truths, his things. And when they did not handle it correctly, he quickly took them out. And so he has always given leadership. And I don't want to linger on this. I actually want to go to another text to support this. But look at verses 12 and 13. That's why Paul says that we should pray for our leaders. Pray for those that God has placed in authority within the church. But we request of you, brethren, he's speaking to the church, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give instruction. Some strong words there. One, we should appreciate those. I love it that the other pastor elders pastor me and I pastor them. We learn to appreciate each other when they see things in our, each other's lives that, that maybe are not square with the scriptures and we'll challenge one another in our thinking. But yet, we should all appreciate those who God has put in charge over us. Notice that they are to diligently labor. This is a strong word that they are not to be lazy men. They are, they are to be men who diligently pour their heart into the ministry. And I have given them charge over you and the Lord here. And, and, and the Lord's telling us this, this real key here. It's not just charge over you, but charge over you in the Lord. So there's the, the qualifier. You just don't get just to be in charge. You get to be in charge because you've got to give me the account of what you did with them. Men need to be prayed for. This is a daunting task that God has given. We're to give you instruction that means we need to know our Bibles, hold to doctrine, stand against the waves of false truth that constantly slam against the church. Just this week alone, I, I cannot tell you how many times things came my direction, mostly outside of the church, but trying to get to the church at some level of just going, no, no, that's not what the Bible says. 
It is a constant battle to protect the church and give it sound instruction. Notice verse 13 says that they are to be esteemed, highly loved, very highly in love. That's a very rare term. It's only used a couple of times. And notice it's just not because they're just pastor so-and-so, but because of their work, because what God has called. Let me take you to 1 Timothy. Just turn um, briefly over a couple of pages to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I want to just remind you why you should be praying for leadership. We know you pray for us. You, many of you constantly let us know that. We, we appreciate it. We hear it from the community groups. We are grateful. Chapter three of First Timothy, Paul is laying out for the church in Ephesus what leadership should look like. The church had deteriorated in its leadership. And Timothy was sent back to Ephesus, a church Paul had started, to set these things in order. In verse 1, he reminds them that there's a calling to it. There's an aspiring to this office. And if somebody aspires to it, it is a fine work he aspires. So he aspires to the work. There's a calling to this man. And why you should pray that God continues to raise up men with a calling to care for Christ's church. But notice verse 2. These are some things that we would ask that you would pray for us. As an overseer, then, must be, he must be above reproach. So that's kind of an overarching principle and all of these fall under it. So he, he, there must not be consistent fault found in this man in these areas. In fact, he must be very consistent in these areas and able to hold this office. First, he is to be a husband of one wife. Literally, the Greek reads a one-woman man. That means he is sold out to the woman God has given him. He is not flirtatious. He does not give to another woman that only belongs to her. It is such a key principle. If he does not do this, how does he counsel? How does he share the relationship of Christ in his church? This is an astounding point, and it needs to be prayed for. Pray for the protection of your leader's marriages. Oh, God, God help the marriages of leadership around the world. How often have we seen men standing on TV, tears running down their face, saying, I have sinned. Step out of ministry, and two years later, they're back. Satan loves to take down leaders. Pray for your leaders that God would protect their marriages, that these men would be men set on Christ and loving their wives. Many other things that are above reproach temperate, that means he's sober, he's he's self controlled, he's prudent, he's respectable, he's hospitable, his home is open to you. He, he has a gift to teach. He's able to give instruction from the word of God. He's not controlled by other things such as wine and pugnacious, argumentative. He's gentle and he's peaceful. He's free from the love of money. He doesn't drive what he does. He's in it for something else. He's in it for the glory of the Lord. And then verses four and five, probably the most difficult aspect of what a pastor does as we oversee our homes and the church. He must be one who manages his home well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So what you, how do you do that? Point the finger at kids and don't disqualify me? Well, that's helpful to them. Or do you teach them to love Jesus? And you're a dad that says, son, 
Your dad's a sinner. And he's fighting to hang on to Jesus, just like you are. And let's work together to love the Lord. He cares for his home because when he cares for his home, it's a picture of how he's going to care for the church. These are first defenses, first principles to our lives. Pray for your leaders. See, Paul's urging us to do that. And you say, well, yeah, we can pray. And I I quickly thought, I said, Lord, I don't want to linger on this too much this morning because as I read this, shouldn't this be something of all of our lives? You say, well, it's it's about elders there. Okay, well, good. Turn over a couple pages. Go to Titus chapter 2. Let's see if we see anything similar to this. This is not given to leadership. Chapter 1 is, but chapter 2 is not. And I think almost everybody can find themselves in this passage. Chapter 2 of Titus, verse 1, but for you speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Speak the things fitting for sound doctrine. Prove it from the scriptures. Not from what you think, way man reasons, or, or I believe this, or I think this. What does the Bible say? That's written to all of us. Two older men, now there's a group here that's fallen into, right? Older men are to be temperate, sober, self-control is the idea, dignified. They're not men of coarse behavior. They're sensible they're sound in faith and love and perseverance. That kind of sounds a little bit like First Timothy 3, men. Women, verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malice gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. This is what godly women do. They don't engage in things that tear down. They engage in things that build up. They teach what is good. Not enslaved to things that keep them not self-controlled, such as wine and anything else. I mean, just it's not wrong to drink, but think about how many things can control a believer's life. Verse four, so that they may encourage the younger women. So there's a role there to love. Now, this is the role of a younger woman, to love their husbands and to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, and keep the home as a priority, kind, Subject to their own husbands so that the word of God would not be blasphemed as the word there, dishonored. Now there's some young guys in here going, boy, we escaped that. Sorry, verse six. <laughs> Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Think biblically. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine dignified, sound in speech. Guys, young guys, this is you, which is beyond reproach. Oh, that's the same word we saw in 1 Timothy. See, isn't this beautiful? And you say, well, Scott, I just feel like a slave in my job. Verse nine, bond slaves. Be subject to your own masters and everything, not to do well, uh, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they, they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. What an amazing text of how God challenges the church to live in every order. So when I tell you to pray for leaders, and I, I wanted you to see that first Timothy passage. This is important. Church can't sustain when, when men are not 
called by God and live according to God. So you gotta pray for your leaders. But we all are called to live a Christ-following life. There's no one that doesn't have these type of qualifications given to us if God has called us. Go back to our text in 1 Thessalonians 5. The next thought that I think Paul is really kind of uh, just a word to sum up what I think Paul is doing is to prefer one another. Look at 14 and 15. I will read a little stronger all the verbs that are imperatives in this next two verses. These are imperatives. That means they're in a command form. They're not suggestions. Verse 14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Encourage the weak-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. See, the church is about preference. We give preference to one another. And you go, well, how does admonishing preference? If you see something in my life and you don't come and talk to me, you are not preferring me. (laughs) Help me. I want to live for the Lord Jesus. Do you? And so we should, in a kindly, loving, Christ-like manner, humble, knowing that Many fingers could be pointed at us as well. When we go to one another, our goal is to win that brother and help them be free from sin. And so it is a preference. Shame on us when we see somebody struggling in sin and we do nothing about it. There is no biblical preference for saying, well, hey, that's somebody else's job. We prefer one another and we see one another and we love one another. And this is in parenting, but it's not only in parenting. In fact, as your children get older, they should be able to come to you and say, Dad, Mom, you said this, but you act this way. Hmm. You're right, son. See, love one another enough to admonish unruly behavior. Behavior that is not lining up with Scripture is the idea there. Notice the next one. Encourage the faint-hearted. Boy, that is that's a great need, isn't it? You know, the world talks about all the time this bullying and look for these kids that are having problems and because they're going to be the next school shooter. I mean, all this is, they're working at this kind of stuff. They try to, try to identify these kids early. And Christians should be on the front line of this stuff. Particularly in the church. Do you know somebody faint-hearted? Do you know somebody's just struggling to trust the Lord? Just doesn't have the strength to stand on their own and they need someone to get underneath their arm and just hold them for a little bit and say, you know what, I'll walk through this with you. See, encourage the faint-hearted. We're waiting for Jesus to return and he's given us instructions of what we're to do. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Every once, in a, every once in a while, all of us go through weak points. We all go through struggles. And we become weak and we become susceptible. We need to recognize that in each other. Husbands and wives, it starts with you. When you see your spouse weak, help them. Don't chastise them. 
help them. Help the weak. My wife knows me better than anyone on this planet. She knows when I'm weak. You know each other. You know your children. You can see it in your children. When they start to struggle, you see it in their responses and, and just their body language at times. We see that. Know your child is going through a spiritual struggle. Help the weak. Look around the church. Find people who are struggling. They're weak. They need help. It rolls into the next imperative. Be patient with one another. You can't prefer one another and be impatient. It doesn't work. I'm putting you first, so get going. (laughs) That doesn't work, does it? Bring them along patiently. Hey, let's get together. Let's have coffee. Let's pray together. Hey, do you want to memorize some scripture together? Hey, let's read a book together and have a talk about it. Be patient with each other. Bring each other along. Verse 15 was interesting to see the imperative of this. It says, see, that's imperative. See that no one repays another evil for evil. If you see a brother in the Lord about ready to do something in response, reacting to something, stop them. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't throw that stone. I know you got pelted by about six others. Don't throw that stone. Be like Jesus who, when threatened, uttered no threats. Did not return evil for evil. This is the point here. See that, that. And we, and we should care for one another in that way. And then look at this last one in here. And then we'll move on. But always seeking after. That's, that is the imperative, the last one in there. But always in seeking after that which is good for one another and for all people. John Piper has written much on this particular statement here. And the summation of what he has written through the years is that Christians should lead the charge in what is good on this earth. We should be about things that are good, that are supported from the scriptures, that are examined, verse 21. We should be leading the charge. That doesn't mean abuse of things, but it means what's good, what's, what's best. And we're watching our world just implode, aren't we? We're imploding in our view of marriage and human rights and uh, economics. I mean, we're just imploding in every area. What's good? So standing for what's good is always not the popular vote, but we need to still seek after what is good for our nation, for our schools, for, for the people that we are around. This is what the church does. When people look to the church, they should say, wow, those people seem to have a different life. I, I want what they have. And thus we get to share the gospel with them. Look at Romans chapter 12 with me just quickly. Verse nine, let love be without hypocrisy. I think that sums up those verses in First Thess 5. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. And there's certain things going on in our world we ought to just abhor. Constant tossing of a child in the womb of a mother. No, no regard at all for life. Canada now, after 75, you are no longer available for insurance. 
You're too costly, 75ers in here. You cost us too much. Get rid of them. European unions move the same way. There's no concern for life in the elderly. See, we ought to abhor, that ought to bother us. But how we do it is where we show the good. We don't blow up buildings. We pray, we share the gospel, we seek after young gals that have been misled and lied to and have been stuck in sin. These are things that are good. These are good. We train our children to love the Lord Jesus Christ. These are good. We cling to them. I love this word, cling. Can you see that word? It's just, I'm hanging on to what I know is right when the rest of the world isn't. And, and you college-age kids, man, I know what you're going through. My sons go to college, and they come home, and, they, and we have discussions of what was in sociology and a supposed history class that changed the view of marriage all of a sudden. I know what you're going through, kids. Cling to what is good. Hold on to it. Remember, the, Satan loves to make things good be evil and evil good. That's what he does, right? He's a master magician. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Young people, if you're on a college campus together, cling to one another, be devoted to one another. High school, same with you. Many of you are here at San Benito. School of almost 4,000 kids. Find one another. Cling to one another. Be people who love Christ together. Give preference. Notice this in verse 10. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Boy, how do you lag behind in diligence? Well, I'm just too busy. You know what time I get home? You know what time I leave? I can't get to a community group. I can't. I can't care for that. I can't fit a meal for that person. See, we lag behind so often because we choose to get our priorities out of whack. And then we're not used of God. And so we're just, we don't have that ability. And so we don't give preference to other, everybody gives preference to us. What's your priorities like today? What, what have you said in order to give God the most glory? What have you said no to so that you can be in worship together and have your children studying God's word together? What do we need as a body of Christ to say no to so that we don't lack behind in our diligence and we're not fervent in spirit serving the Lord? These are truths for us. Turn back to our text in First Thess, verse five, I mean chapter five. We need to be good to one another and to all people. Third, pray and rejoice and give thanks is God's will for you. This is God's will for you. Verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing and everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What a question. How many times are you asked, or at least I know I am asked a lot, what is God's will for my life? Well, there's one verse that'll answer it. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks in all things. This should be the motif of the waiting church. They're a rejoicing group. I walked across from my office this morning and there were some people walking back and forth and I had my window open and I was back, I came over and I went back and I was watching people just walk and praying and getting ready for service. Robert and the team were playing away here, and I just thought, Lord, 
Let us be something different. Let us let people, as they walk by, as they hear us, as they interact with us, that we are, we are a rejoicing people. I just hope we don't sound like another band. I, I, think we, I don't think we do. I think if somebody walks by when we're singing, they gotta go, I, those people are happy. I don't know what they're happy about, but they're sure happy in there. We should be a rejoicing group. In, in this prayer, pray without ceasing. You go, why do you do that? Well, it's a, it's a mindset of trusting and talking with God along the way. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, you can talk while you drive. You can do that. They haven't outlawed prayer and driving yet. You can't eat, talk on the phone, or do anything else, but, but you can pray. And it's okay to have your eyes open. You probably should if you're driving. For some of you, it could be the only time during the day that you have any time alone. That 45-hour, two-hour commute, some of you, I pray for you. Pray. Talk to the Lord. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Let me show you some verses that I think will just encourage you. Prayer is about thankfulness. And it doesn't mean that you can't beseech God. There are other verses that tell us to beseech God and petition him for things. We should do that. But there are some great verses I just want to remind you of, of praying. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Well, how'd you receive him? He was a gift. You were given a gift. God granted you the gift of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 12 through 14. It was a gift given to you. So walk as though you received a gift, something you didn't deserve. Verse 7 having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him, you're established, you're standing on Christ, established in your faith, he is your faith, your faith is in him, just as you were instructed, now look at the last phrase here, and overflowing with gratitude. Oh, I want to be that person. Someone that overflows with gratitude. Boy, it's easy to complain, isn't it? It just comes natural to us because it is natural to us but to rejoice, to say, okay, God, this is the hand you have given me. In your sovereign will, you chose to give me this life, this wife, this disease, this job, this whatever it may be, whatever life is, you have given this to me. And I wanna rejoice over it with gratitude. How about praying psalms? Have you ever done that? I just thought of one this week that I love to pray. Psalms 8, just turn there very quickly with me. You can just pray psalms. Maybe sometimes you don't know where to start. You just go, I don't know where to start, Lord. Maybe just find a psalm and start praying psalms. Look at David's prayer in Psalms 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants, from nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversary to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your, he your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are thoughtful of him? I mean, just what a great prayer. Doesn't that put you in the right praying mood? Lord, I I'm looking at your heavens and I'm, I'm nothing. Stand at the ocean and think about the molecules that fill the ocean. Just drive 
I think you can, about half an hour, 45 minutes, you can go into the ocean if you go that way. Stand there and think about the molecules and God knows all those things. And yet, David says, you're mindful of me? And so that thought just carries you right in prayer and you go, Lord, oh, you know me. You know my sinful tendencies. You know, you know I would have never chose you on my own. You know I was dead in my trespasses. I had no desire in my heart for you. You had to create all that. You had to love me. See, just that thought, that, that psalm leads you into worshipful prayer. See, sometimes you just pray a psalm and for sake of time, you can read down those, but notice how he closes. He started the way he closed. Verse nine, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Look at it, chapter um, five of Ephesians. Go back, Ephesians chapter five. There's, uh, Ephesians has a lot of prayers within it. When you study this book, particularly grammatically, you realize he prays, preaches, prays, preaches, prays, preaches all the way through this book. Chapter five, excuse me, chapter one, chapter one, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope. And now he just starts pouring this prayer out, the hope of this calling. Paul's saying, I I just want you to get a hold of your calling. It's not just, oh, hey, I'm saved, great, good to go to heaven. Oh, what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints? Oh, what you have waiting for you. See, Paul got to look into the third heaven, he said. He says, oh, I'm just praying that you'll start to get your mind around what God has called you into. He goes on to say that it's the surpassing greatness of his power towards us. This almighty, sovereign God has a surpassing greatness of his power, but it's towards us. He he puts it towards us. He is everything. Chapter, Chapter three, verse 14, for this reason I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. He, he's the linkage to everything. Verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And he just goes on and blows your mind with this inconceivable, uncomprehendable love that God has. It's, it's height, it's death, it's width. He's just overwhelmed with it. That's why you pray. And yes, go to the Lord and say, Lord, my heart is heavy. I'm hurting over these things. But never leave prayer without saying, oh God, I know you love me. Let me experience that love deeper. Let me know you. James chapter five, verse 16 says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. It's amazing what changes in our lives and how God uses prayer. Fourth, as we make our way back to our text, is protect the work of the Spirit in your life. Protect the work of the Spirit in your life. Notice he says this in verse 19, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise the prophetic utterance, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, Abstain from every form of evil. Protect the work of the Spirit in your life. Remember I showed you in verse 18 that if you want to know the will of God, it says it right here, is that we are to give thanks in everything. 
But just look over to chapter four, verse three. For this is the will of God. Verse three, chapter four, great answer to the next person to ask you, what's the will of God? This is the will of God, your sanctification. And I don't think he's talking about initial sanctification. This is the initial sanctification is where God sets us apart. He calls us out of the world, says you're mine, Hebrews chapter two, verse 11 type stuff. Hebrews 10, 10, initial sanctification. He chooses us, sets us apart, cleanses of our sins. That's initial sanctification. But this is that progression now growing in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice if you go back to verse one, he says, finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us instruction of how you ought to walk and please God. This is back to the leaders again. He gives leaders to do this, to help people walk and grow. You're not an island. You're not the Lone Ranger. You need a church and you need leadership. And you notice he sees that they're doing this just as you've actually do walk. But then he says that you excel still more. Oh, oh, shame on us if we ever get to the point where we say we've arrived. If the rest of you could just live like me. If, those, if that family over there could just get their act together like we do. Oh my goodness. Excel still more. The humble man and woman who goes to the scriptures continues to hunger to walk with the Lord. For you know, verse two, what commandment we, get, we gave by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. How he takes care of his body, how he takes care of what God has given him or her, not in lustful passions like the pagans, Gentiles, who do not know God. There should be a distinct difference even in morality to the church, to those of the world. This is your sanctification. This is the will of God. So we've got to be careful what we let into our minds, um, visually, uh, auditorily, um, thought process-wise. We need to protect that, and the way you do that is love the word of God, love doctrine, study it. Look, he goes on to say that, verse six, and that no man trespass and defraud his brother in the matters, because the Lord is the avenger. Doubtless there's people in here, you go, you know what this person did to me? Yeah, you may be right, you may be wrong, because you may have a false view of it, but you know what? In the end, nobody gets away with nothing. The Lord brings vengeance. In fact, he says over and over, over, vengeance is mine. There are things probably all of us need to let go of. Let it go. Forgive, live at peace with all men. Verse seven, for God has not called us, kaleidos, called us out of this world for us for the purpose of impurity, but for sanctification. That's growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse eight, so he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is what God does. He gives you the spirit so you can live this life. And that brings us back to verse 19. Don't sequester, don't quench, don't lock away, don't put out the flame of the spirit. Let it burn. And I think that's such a good command for all of us as we think about this. Lord, I know how to sequester your spirit. 
I know, I know how to kind of keep him in the closet. The Bible says here, don't sequester him, don't quench him. Don't put him out is the idea of the word. Let him burn brightly. Spirit is the word pneuma. We get the word flame from. Let him burn brightly. Jesus said don't take your torch and put a basket under it, but put it on a hill and let it shine. That's what the Spirit wants to do within our lives. And certainly verse 20 was in accordance with the time the scriptures weren't written, so there were prophetic utterances, but I think this is true today. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Go, oh, Scott, you're going somewhere we usually don't go. Look at verse 24. Let me show you a prophetic utterance. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. I'm telling you, that's a prophetic utterance. That means I am saying, when I preach and say God is going to come and he's going to take care of things, that's, that's right out of the Bible. When we were kids, we had prophetic conferences. And all they did is talked about the things God was going to do and we could trust him that he was going to do it. Today, the word prophetic and I got a word from God and it's all crazy now. What You don't know who's studying their Bibles or just maybe they ate something wrong. I, I don't know what it is. But he's talking about utterances that are truth that are coming. Then he says this to qualify, verse 20, verse 21, but examine everything carefully. If someone comes up and says, I got a word from God, you better examine that. Because he gave us what we need. And we need to search things from the scriptures, not what we think or what we've reasoned our way to. And this causes us to hold fast to what is good. Jesus said when the man said, called him good, he said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. He was qualifying that he's God and he's good. Why are you calling me this? I must be this one. Hold to Christ. Hold to the word of God. Abstain from every form of evil. Last thought, and we'll close with this. Pursue Christ and his word and trust him with the rest. Pursue Christ and his word and trust him with the rest. Now we're back to the verses we started with. Now may God, may the God of peace, that is only for a believer. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, he is not your God of peace. He is still a God of wrath to you. And he will have his holiness and justice seen but to us, he is the God of peace. He has made peace between us through Jesus Christ. So Paul says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, get you to that point, move you along this life with all its ups and downs and its swales and the difficulties and conform you to the image of Jesus. May he bring you to that. And may your spirit, soul, and body be Preserve complete. He's, he is a whole thing. This is mind. This is attitude. This is life. This is intentions. This is physical movement. This is everything he brings into. May we be found complete. Mind, body, soul, a whole person. Notice that the Lord does this and he brings you without blame. Can you imagine that? At the coming of Jesus, you will stand there without blame. Staggering. Worth praying about and rejoicing over. Lord, I know I could not be blameless without you. You're coming. In verse 24, we've already read it, but faithful is he who calls you. He's called you out of the world. 
He says, be mine. And we don't know who he next calls. That's not our job. Don't cross that line. Too many people want to argue over this stuff. Just preach the gospel. Put it out there. God will save. He's perfect in all that he does. He makes no mistakes. He's faithful. He called you. And he will also bring it to pass. That means he's going to get us from this life to the next. And we will stand in his presence. Brethren, pray for us. Father, we thank you for these instructions to the church. We can get so lost so quickly when our priorities are out of whack. When money, family, Things, even things that are good, like our relationships with our family, Lord, when they get ahead of you, we forget these truths. We get self-centered. We don't pray enough. We're not happy people. We don't prefer one another. We're not careful with the things we put in front of our eyes and our hearts and our minds, Lord. Father, help us be a church Church, blood bought by Jesus Christ, Lord. Called by a sovereign God to be part of his bride. Help us be a church that that is in the process of being sanctified every day. Lord, Paul Paul said it was a race. Run the race. I've run it at the end of his life. Lord, some of us need to get up and stop sitting on the side of the road and start running again. Start studying your word and praying and preferring others, Lord, and being happy. I pray that you would move in our hearts, Lord. Paul said it's also a fight, Lord, so it means it's not an easy race, Lord. It's hard to run when somebody's punching you. Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability to run and fight this good fight. Fight our flesh. Love those who are drifting off of the road enough to pull them back onto it. Lord, we pray that we would finish well for your glory. Lord, we don't know when you're going to return. The Bible says you'll come like a thief in the night. Jesus, you yourself, Lord, said you do not know when the Father will send you. Staggering comment made in this fully God, fully man position. But yet, Lord, we know that it is something that's going to happen. It's promised. And Lord, we want to be ready. Ready as moms and dads, as grandparents, ready. As college age and career age and high school age and elementary age. Ready for the coming king. He's coming to set up his kingdom. And he's coming to gather his church, his bride, his people Lord, may we be ready. May our lamps be trimmed. May they be filled with oil. And may they be burning bright. We give you praise for this. In Jesus' name, amen. 